Well, it is a privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, when I found out that we were going to be preaching through Galatians as, uh, as a church, uh, I was quite excited. And uh, the, the main reason for that is that uh, I've spent uh, probably anywhere between eight to ten years of my life studying the book of Galatians. And part of the beauty of living in a book like that is that you begin to become uh, more than just friends. It becomes something dear to you. In fact, Martin Luther, when he wrote his commentary on the book of Galatians, referred to it as his Katie von Bora, meaning his wife. So he referred to the letter to the Galatians as, in, as, as something so precious to him that he compared it to his very own wife. And so it's, it's an honor to be here and to preach these next three Sundays. And also, to be honest, uh, you know, this is a little bit probably selfish on my part, but this is one of my favorite sections of Galatians, and so I had the opportunity to ask Pastor Mark and the other elders if they'd be okay with me preaching a few Sundays, and it's also an opportunity to give them a, a break from the pulpit and perhaps uh, get to focus on some other things. So uh, consider it an act of service as well to, to you as an elder Mark and the others, but um, you know, I think all of us are familiar with the expression, like father, like son. And we often use that expression to explain why a person is the way that he is. We tend to take for granted that people will in some ways resemble their parents, at least in some fashion. And so those of you who know my family and you know my two sons, you probably know that my oldest son, John, looks a lot like me. And yet his personality is a little closer to my wife's personality, being more extroverted. And then our youngest son, Jake, although he looks much more like his mother, he has more of my personality, more introverted. And so it, it's just one of those realities that, that you tend to have some sort of characteristics from your parents. But in the ancient world, this idea of like father, like son, was extended beyond a person's relationship to their own parents. In fact, if you wanted to say that a person was characterized by a specific kind of trait, you would actually say that they are a son of, and then fill in the trait. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul refers to unbelievers as sons of disobedience and children of of wrath. And the idea is, is that that person is so characterized by wrath or by disobedience that it is as if wrath and disobedience produced children because they so resemble those characteristics. In fact, Jesus even gave two of his disciples who were brothers the nickname Sons of Thunder, which totally makes you wonder what kind of guys they were like, right? Can you imagine hanging out with Two guys whose nicknames were Sons of Thunder. And so in the passage we're going to look at today, Paul addresses the issue of who are the true sons of Abraham and why that matters. And let's be honest, my guess is that for some of you at least, when you hear that question of who are the true sons of Abraham, you're not immediately thinking, wow. This is going to absolutely directly apply to my life tomorrow morning. But I promise you that that question does have 
enormous consequences for all of us because there is a very real sense in which the answer to that question holds the key to our identity, our standing before God, and ultimately what God is doing in this world to fix this broken world we live in. So with that in mind, let's open to Galatians chapter 3. And to help us get a running start, it's good to remind ourselves of what Paul was talking about in verses 1 through 5, which uh, we heard last week. In those verses, Paul is emphasizing that the Christian life both begins and continues on the basis of faith in Christ and not keeping the requirements of the Mosaic law. And that claim now leads Paul to bring forth his star witness, Abraham. And so we're going to see how Paul is going to state his thesis, and then he's going to unpack it for us. And so in verses 6 through 9 of Galatians chapter 3, we're going to see that Paul's thesis is very straightforward. It's this, those who believe are sons of Abraham. Those who believe are sons of Abraham. So follow along as I read from Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, if we're honest, we read through that, and that's a very dense paragraph. And so we're going to try to break this into some smaller pieces. Paul begins by quoting from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which is part of the passage that John read for us this morning. God had promised to make Abraham into a great nation by giving him numerous descendants. But here it is 10 years later, and Abraham and his wife Sarah still do not have a single son or daughter. And in light of this impossible situation, Abraham confesses his doubts to the Lord. But after God reiterates his promise, that he's going to keep that promise as well, Abraham believes that God is who he says he is, and that he will do what he says he will do. And as a result, God looks at Abraham, and he counts that faith as righteousness. In other words, he justifies Abraham. He declares, Abraham, you are now not guilty before me. You are in a right relationship with me. You have a right standing with me. You are not guilty. And so from that incident, Paul draws a conclusion that those of faith are sons of Abraham. In other words, it's the by-faithers who are sons of Abraham, not the by-doing folks that are truly the sons of Abraham. And this is similar language to what he's already used here in Galatians. Back in chapter 2, he talked about the fact that 
believers are justified by faith and not by works of the law. And then in chapter 3, he's been talking about the fact that the Christian life begins by faith and it continues by faith and not doing or keeping the works of the law. And so the defining mark of what it means to be a son of Abraham is to be a by-faither, someone who trusts in Jesus. Now, let me just note here that when Paul talks about this idea of being a son of Abraham, he is not excluding women. Now, you could translate this as children of Abraham, but there's a very good reason for keeping the expression son of Abraham, because in the ancient world, the concept of being a son was tightly tied to the idea of having an inheritance. And so when you think about this idea of being a son of Abraham, he is talking about men and women, and it's going to eventually here later in this passage, be tied to this idea of if you are a son of Abraham, then you're going to get to inherit what was promised to Abraham. But still, at this point, you might be wondering, okay, Matt, I get it, but I still don't have a clue as to why it matters to be a son of Abraham. After all, Abraham lived almost 4,000 years ago. Why does it matter if I'm a descendant of a Jewish man who lived 4,000 years ago? Now, Paul answers that question, though, in verse 8, when he insists that long ago, God had promised in Scripture that he would justify both Jews and Gentiles together by faith when he promised to bless all the nations through Abraham. That was the initial promise that God made to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, which we had read earlier. Now, in that passage, God promises Abraham people, place, and presence. In other words, God will multiply his descendants beyond what he can count. He will give them a place to live, and he will be with them as their God. People, place, and presence. And what's very important to recognize here is that even in this promise, when God says he's going to bless all the nations in or through Abraham, he's making it clear that there is some sense in which your ethnicity doesn't matter when it comes to being a son of Abraham. That there is more to being a son of Abraham than being able to trace a bloodline back to this one man. That it's going to transcend biology and ethnicity and ultimately going to be determined on some other basis. And that some other basis is by faith. Hence, Paul's claim that to be a son of Abraham is defined by being a by-faither, okay? So God's promise to Abraham doesn't come out of nowhere, though. When you read the flow of the book of Genesis, it becomes clear that this is actually God's plan to bring about the serpent crusher that he had promised to Adam and Eve in the garden. You see, this serpent crusher was supposed to come along and obey where Adam and Eve had failed and take upon himself the punishment for their sins that they had committed. 
And so this is God's plan to bring about the serpent crusher. It's this serpent crusher who's eventually going to fix what is wrong with this broken world. And so this idea of being a son of Abraham doesn't just matter if you're a Jewish person. It matters because this is God's plan to fix the world. And so if you want to be involved in that, if you want to be a part of that, that's why it matters if you're a son of Abraham. Because being a son of Abraham is the only way you can stand before a holy God and hear him say those all-important words of not guilty. It's the only way. And it's also the only way that you can experience the kind of transforming power of God in your life to turn you from being an enemy of God to being a part of his family. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's why Paul says that Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Now, that's a really interesting expression when you stop to think about that. We can have this tendency, I think, to think that the gospel suddenly appears when Jesus shows up. But that's not, strictly speaking, true. What Paul says is, is that the gospel goes all the way back at least to Abraham. And in other passages, he says it actually goes all the way back to Adam. That the gospel was announced in advance to Abraham. That somehow through this guy named Abraham, there would come one who would crush the serpent and make all things new. And by the way, this helps us understand that from the very beginning, God has always saved people by faith. I think sometimes we have this misconception perhaps that, well, yeah, in the Old Testament, people were saved by keeping the law. If you just did the law, that's how you got saved. But then Jesus came along, and in the New Testament, you get saved by faith. That's not how the Bible hangs together. It's always been on the basis of faith. Even Adam and Eve were saved on the basis of their trust in God and the promise that he had made. It's always been by faith. Now, we have a, a kind of faith that is similar to Abraham, and that's the point that, that Paul's making here. And yet it's different, right? You see, Abraham's faith, if we can boil it down, boiled down to this. He trusted in the God of the promise and the promises of God. That was what he did. He trusted in the God of the promise and the promises of God. Well, we do the same thing. It's just that the details of the specifics of those promises are way more specific because God has revealed more of his plan that has culminated in the person of Jesus. But at the root of our faith is a belief, a trust, a confidence, a hope, a complete, utter, throwing ourselves on the fact that God is going to keep his promise and that God is who he says he is. So that's how we have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. And so if we have the same kind of faith that Abraham had, we are also sons of Abraham. That's Paul's thesis, his claim, what he's going to lay out and say, this is at the heart of the gospel what it means to know God. It's to be a son of Abraham. And that comes 
on the face basis of faith and not trying to keep the Mosaic law. So that's his thesis. What comes next then in verses 10 through 14 is a corollary, a sort of implication, a, well, if that's true, then this is what follows. And it's going to, do, uh, going to deal with the Mosaic law. And that corollary is this. Doing the Mosaic law does not make you a son of Abraham. Trying to keep the Mosaic law does not make you a son of Abraham. So follow along as I read now through verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, if you thought the last paragraph was dense, this one is even thicker. So we're going to have to take it step by step. The good news is, is that if you look a little bit closer, there's actually a very consistent pattern that is evident here in this paragraph. What Paul does is he makes a statement about the Mosaic law, and then he supports that statement with a quote from a passage in the Old Testament. And based on that pattern, what we can actually see is that there are three reasons why keeping the Mosaic law cannot make someone a son of Abraham. And so the first one is actually found there in verse 10. And the reason that the law cannot make you a son of Abraham is that it brings a curse rather than blessing. The Mosaic law brings a curse rather than blessing. So Paul tries to explain here in verse 10 that anyone who relies on doing the law to be a justified son of Abraham inevitably falls under a curse. And then he supports that claim by quoting probably a couple of different passages, but really it's Deuteronomy 27, 26 and Deuteronomy 28, 58 together, which in the original context of those passages, what you have going on is God is announcing to the nation of Israel that if they fail to keep the terms of the covenant he is making with them, he will curse them, and the ultimate form of that curse is to send them out of the land, to eject them from the promised land, and send them into exile away from his presence. So that was the, the threat that God had set out, that if you don't keep the terms of my covenant, if you do not obey the terms of this covenant, you will experience my curse. 
And of course, if you know the history of the nation of Israel, that's exactly what happened to them. They failed to keep the Mosaic Law Covenant, and eventually God brought judgment upon them and ejected them from the land, sending them off into exile. And what Paul is saying here is, if you try to go down the path of earning a standing before God based on doing what the law says, the inevitable result is a curse and not blessing. And although he doesn't come out and say it, the reason underneath all of this, I think, is pretty clear. What Paul is getting at is he's saying, no one can keep the law perfectly. And that's why a curse is the inevitable result of trying to earn your standing before God by keeping the Mosaic law because it's ultimately impossible. It cannot be done. And God requires, demands perfect obedience in everything you think, in everything you say, in everything you do, in every desire you have, God demands complete and perfect obedience if you're going to be right with him. You have to ace it. Not a single misstep if you're going to try to go down that path. And what Paul is saying is, that's not possible. You can't do it. It cannot be done. And so the inevitable result is a curse. Now this point is so important that I want to linger here for a minute. Because it's so crucial that we understand this. There is nothing you or I can do to earn God's approval. It doesn't matter how much you read your Bible, how much you pray, how much money you give, whether you share the gospel with other people. It doesn't matter how nice you are to your neighbors. None of that matters because we cannot earn our standing before God. It is not possible. You can't do it. You may think you are a good person. You may think you've never done anything really evil or really bad, or that at least your good works outweigh your evil works or your sins. But the truth is, God doesn't grade on a curve. He's not nice like me in that sense, right? I grade on a curve sometimes. Not all the time. Don't get the wrong idea if there are any students here. But God is perfectly just and demands utter and complete perfection. you got to nail it. All of it. Every bit. Every single detail. You have to get exactly right. Otherwise, it's the curse that comes upon you. And friend, you can't do it. You cannot do it. And not only is it impossible to live up to that standard of perfection, but when we try to earn God's favor, we fall into one of two extremes. We either fool ourselves into thinking we're actually doing it, and we become insufferably arrogant and legalistic. We walk around with this air of, I'm better than you because I am crushing it when it comes to doing what God says. And we 
puff ourselves up and we think we're actually something when in fact we're not. That's one extreme. The other extreme is we recognize we can't pull it off. We recognize that the crushing weight of perfection is something that we cannot live up to and we spiral downward into this despair and this discouragement, this hopelessness of what chance do I have? I can't live up to this. I have no hope. One of those two extremes is where we end up. Friends, that's a taste of the curse in the present. That's a taste of the curse right now that awaits in the future. So that's the first reason the law cannot make you right with God is that it brings a curse rather than a blessing. The second reason the law cannot make someone a son of Abraham is that it brings condemnation rather than justification. And this is a similar point, but it's slightly different. That's what he's saying in verse 11 when he says that it's obvious no one can be justified by the law. No one can be justified by trying to do all the commands that God has given. And to support this claim, Paul trots out a verse that many of us might be familiar with because we're familiar with its use in the New Testament, but otherwise maybe not because it's from one of those obscure minor prophets that we don't tend to look at very much, right? It's Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which says, the righteous will live by faith. Now, when you look at the original context of Habakkuk chapter 2, the prophet is wrestling with this, this profound question of, God, how can you use the Babylonians, a people who are even more wicked than Israel, to bring judgment on Israel? How can you use people who are so wicked to judge your own people who are admittedly sinful? How does that work? God, what are you doing? And he's wrestling with this. He's, he's frustrated. And in the context of that, God tells the prophet Habakkuk that those who continue to trust in God will, in fact, experience redemption. Those who continue to trust in God and his promises, even when they can't see all that God is doing right now, will experience salvation. And Paul sees in this fundamental verse, this fundamental principle, that, that God declares a person righteous on the basis of faith and not trying to do what the Mosaic law says. So Paul's point is that God has always declared a person righteous, not guilty, in his court of law based on trusting in the God of the promise, and the promises of God. And those who instead try to get that right standing with God by their obedience will inevitably be condemned rather than justified on the last day because no one can produce the kind of obedience that God ultimately requires. So let's look now at the third reason that the law cannot make you a son of Abraham. And that is, the law relies on doing rather than trusting. The law relies on doing 
rather than trusting. So now in verse 12, when Paul argues that the law is not of faith, what he's trying to say is that one cannot simply combine the good works, the doing of the Mosaic law, plus faith in Jesus to produce a right standing with God. And that's what the opponents in Galatia were probably trying to argue here. They were saying, faith in Jesus is great, but you have to add to it keeping the requirements of the Mosaic law. And here's the, here's the important thing about the math that's behind the gospel. I know that there's at least one person in this room who will really appreciate math references, so this is for you, Ryan. Um, Divine math, gospel math, is that Jesus plus anything is actually nothing. Jesus plus anything is actually nothing. Because when you try to add something to what Jesus has done, you are actually subtracting from it. When you try to add to what Jesus has done, you actually subtract from it. And so Paul is trying to make it clear that you don't add to the work of Jesus because it's perfectly sufficient. Now, he supports this claim when he says the law is not of faith by quoting from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. And in its original context, that verse instructed Israel that by keeping the requirements of the Mosaic law, they would experience his blessings in the promised land. And Paul's opponents may have even been using this exact verse to try to make their case that faith in Jesus is great, but you need to add on to that keeping the Mosaic law. Which, as a side note here, that should tell us, by the way, you can use the Bible to prove a lot of things that aren't true. To prove, right? And we all see it, right? It doesn't matter what context we are in. You see someone grab a verse of scripture and say, see, God approves of, and then fill in the blank when you know, well, no, God doesn't approve of that. It's obvious in other passages of scripture that he doesn't approve of that at all. And so part of what Paul is doing here in this passage is he's helping us to learn how to read the Bible. That you can't just cherry pick verses and say, see, this is what God wants. You have to put it together with the rest of what Scripture says to make sure that your understanding of one particular verse is consistent with the rest of what Scripture says. And one of the things that I so appreciate and love about being here at Christ's Covenant now for almost 14 years is I have seen firsthand the commitment of our elders to faithfully teach and preach Scripture and to openly say, if you think I'm misunderstanding something, please tell me. Let's talk about it. I want to make sure we get it right. Because at the end of the day, yes, the elders and the preachers who stand up here are responsible before God for everything that they say and, and, and preach. Absolutely. But you as an individual believer are responsible for weighing it, looking at it and saying, does that match up with Scripture? And ultimately, 
part of the beauty of what God does is he uses each of us in the body of Christ to help us grow in our understanding of Scripture to make sure we understand what Scripture actually says. And so we are in this together. Yes, we should have a disposition that says, I am going to trust and give a good hearing to what is preached from the pulpit. But at the end of the day, we also have to look at the text and say, does that line up with what the Bible itself says? And so Paul is teaching us how to read the Bible. Now, trusting in Jesus and trying to keep the Mosaic law don't work together because in a very real sense, they operate on fundamentally different principles. It's like the difference between a PC and a Mac. They have different operating systems. You can't just transfer things directly between them oftentimes. If you've had that computer experience, that can be super frustrating, right? You've got a file format on a PC, you want to transfer it over to a Mac, and there's all this complicated stuff. They work on different operating systems. And what Paul is saying here is that faith and the law work on two fundamentally different sets of principles. That's because faith operates on the principles of trust and receiving, while the law operates on the principles of doing and earning. Faith operates on the principle of trusting and receiving. The law operates on the principles of doing and earning. That's why you can't mix them together. Faith and the law can't make you together a justified son of Abraham who receives the promised blessing. So trying to get right before God by our efforts to obey his commandments puts us on the path to a curse rather than blessing and the path to condemnation rather than justification. Having a right relationship with God is based on the principles of trusting and receiving rather than doing and earning. So, that raises the question of who or what am I supposed to trust in? And that's what Paul's going to tell us in verse 13. Look with me again. Paul writes, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Our only hope of escaping the curse and condemnation that we deserve for failing to obey God perfectly is to trust in Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can redeem us, who can rescue us, who can deliver us from the curse that the law brings for failing to obey God. Christ rescues us by standing in our place and taking upon himself the curse that you and I deserve for our disobedience. And to support that point, Paul's going to bring out one more Old Testament passage. It's Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, which tells us that anyone hanged on a tree is cursed. Now, in its context, this passage was instructions for Israel 
that when a person was condemned to death for breaking the law in certain ways, they were to be hung on a tree as a display of the curse that comes for disobedience. And what Paul is saying is that as Jesus hung on that cross, he was experiencing the curse that you and I deserved for our sins. And by doing that, he turns away God's wrath. You see, Paul's point is that by becoming a curse for us, Christ turns away the wrath that God rightly has for our sin. That's a profound mystery. And yet, it's a mystery that God had told would happen in advance. You see, almost 700 years before Jesus was born, he inspired the prophet Isaiah to see this glorious truth. So that in Isaiah 53, when God inspired Isaiah with this vision, this picture of a suffering servant, this is what he wrote, starting in verse 4, of what Jesus would be for us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus did for us. When Jesus hung on that cross, he was drinking the cup of of wrath that God had stored up for us because of our rebellion, because of our sinfulness. Every sinful thought we have ever had, every sinful desire, every sinful word, every sinful action that his people would ever commit, Jesus is suffering the punishment for that. He is taking upon himself the curse for us. The sinless one was made to be sin so that those who were sinful could be declared righteous. The blessed one was declared cursed so that those who should have been cursed can be blessed. And the nature of that blessing is further described here in verse 14 when Paul writes, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The blessing of being a justified son of Abraham who is part of a great nation of people who will dwell in a new creation in the very presence of God himself comes to Jew and Gentile alike 
through faith. God had promised to bless all the nations through Abraham, and that promise is now fulfilled as Jew and Gentile, male and female, no matter what your ethnicity, your socioeconomic background, or your gender, it doesn't matter. All who trust in Jesus, all of the by-faithers, are sons of Abraham who will receive what God had promised to Abraham. And the epitome of that, the, 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 the sort of crown jewel of that blessing is the gift of the Spirit. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And Paul's going to unpack more of the significance of that later in the letter. But let's just pause to think that those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, we're not any better than anybody else. It's just that God has rescued us. And that it would be one thing if God said, I'll declare you not guilty. How amazing would that be? That would be incredible. And then just kind of go on your way, like a, like a legal transaction. But he says so much more than that. He says, I'm going to declare you not guilty, and then I'm going to come live inside of you. I'm going to dwell with you. My spirit is going to take up his residence in you so that what used to only be true in one sense of the temple in Jerusalem or the tabernacle in the wilderness or in the Garden of Eden now is true of you as an individual believer and as a group of believers. I will live with you. I will dwell with you. That's the crown jewel of the promise in some ways. All of those blessings that are connected with God's promise to Abraham, come to us by faith. So are you a son of Abraham? I'm confident that many of us in this room are. But I'm also confident that in a group of people this size, there are some here this morning who are not. And I want to speak very directly graciously, but firmly to you, if that's your situation. You, have may, you may have come in here this morning and not have had any idea even who Abraham was or why he matters, or whether you were his son or not. But let me be clear, everything hangs on this question. Every single one of us enters this world with the dark clouds of God's righteous judgment hanging over us on that horizon. And no amount of good works that you do can make you right with him, can take away that terrifying cloud of judgment that's coming. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you think you can do to kind of clean yourself up, it's not going to erase the reality of the storm clouds of God's curse and judgment that are awaiting you if you don't turn from your sins. Why would you hang on to those when Jesus says, I will take your curse. I'll take it. Every sinful thing you've said, done, thought, or ever experienced, I'll take it. I'll take your curse so you can be blessed. Why will you cling to your sin? When God has sent his son to bear the curse 
for us. God offers you blessing instead of curse. He offers you justification rather than condemnation. So become one of those by-faithers who puts his trust in Jesus. And God promises that everything he promised to give to Abraham, he'll give to you as well. But for those of us who have already put our faith in Jesus Christ, this passage is a fresh reminder of some very important realities. I'm glad that God is not nice like me when it comes to grading. He's just. And his grace is way better than my niceness in the classroom. Way better. And yet for us, this passage should be a reminder that our standing before God is based on trusting rather than doing. It's based on receiving rather than earning. But I know in my own individual everyday experience, and I'm confident that this is true of many of us, that we think that our standing before God depends on how well we're doing that day at obeying God. It's almost like we're politicians, and we have this sort of running approval number You know, you see the polls, right? This politician has a 48% approval rating or whatever. We tend to think like that, that we think that in heaven, God has this running approval number for us. Like, well, let's see, Matt's running at 47% today. He was mean to the dog and didn't say nice things to his wife. So as a result, he's down there and we think, oh man, I got to do something to get my approval ratings up. So I'm going to try harder. Right? I'm just going to try harder to obey God the rest of the day. And when I feel like I'm doing a little bit better, then I think my approval ratings will inch back up and maybe I can get it back up over 50% by the end of the day. We live with this sort of functional approach that says my approval, my standing before God is based more on doing than it is on trusting. Brothers and sisters, I need to hear this every bit as much as anybody else in this room. My approval before God, your approval before God, is 100% based on the work of Jesus Christ and our trust in him. You cannot improve it. You cannot take away from it. It is 100% locked in. Because when God looks at us, he sees his son. He sees beautiful reflection of his perfect son. He sees the scars of his curse-bearing death on behalf of us. And so when he looks at you, he's not ignorant of your ongoing sin. He knows it. But he looks at you and he sees the face of his son. And he has a smile on his face because he sees Jesus. He sees the beauty of his own son. Sometime after I first came here to Christ's Covenant, I actually taught a life ed class on the book of Galatians. And there was a young woman in that class named Jennifer. She was in her 20s, and she faithfully attended each week. And you could tell that God was doing some work in her life over the course of each week as we were working through this beautiful letter that Paul had written. 
And so about halfway through the class here, so maybe right around this area of the text, she pulls me aside in the lobby out there, and she says to me with this very serious look, she says to me, so I just want to be clear on something. What you're saying is, is that the Bible says there is nothing I can do to add to God's favor because I am already fully accepted and loved by God because I am trusting in Jesus. Is that true? Is that really true? And I said to her, yes, it's true. And you could just see that dark cloud dissipate. And her face, her smile lit up from cheek to cheek. And she said, okay, I'm going to live that way. Brothers and sisters, let's be people who live that way. Let's be the people of God who are by faith. Let's be the people of God who understand that our approval before a holy God is based on trusting and receiving rather than doing and earning. Let's pray.